sight. Caterpillar to a butterfly. It's green and growing with Ashley Frasca. Plants, flowers, trees, and stuff. Brought to you by Pike Nurseries. On 95.5 WSB. Hey, thanks for listening to Green and Growing. We're right here on 95.5 WSB. Good morning. I'm your host, Ashley Frasca. The second to last weekend in January, I believe it was, I had gardener Joe Lample on the show with me. He is of the Joe Gardner franchise. Many of you follow that on Facebook. Also host of Growing a Greener World, an author, an expert podcaster as well. Joe and I have been friends for a number of years now, so I'm glad he's back. He's back to start talking about seed starting with us. So I'm going to go over a seed starting checklist in a few moments with him. Grab a pen and paper. Make sure you jot some of those things down because now is the time to start thinking about doing that. So you'll have those summer vegetables ready to plant in that summer garden that you've always dreamt of. If you missed the checklist, I'll have it on the Green and Growing Facebook page as well. So, Joe, glad you're back. Uh, Starting seed, since this is the time, go ahead and give us the timeline. It depends on what you're starting. Um, I tell people it's almost better to start later than earlier, especially with the cool season. I mean, the warm season crops like, you know, the tomatoes and the things that we want to grow for summer indoors. If you start too early, you've got those plants growing to the point that they're going to want to be going outside before our frost-free date. Mm -hmm. And they're going to be kind of itching to get out there, and they're going to be uncomfortable in that artificial environment, you know, weeks ahead of when they really can safely get outside. So I would say start starting my summer crops around mid to late February, and I'm starting. But if you want to get busy right now, you you can start cool season things like cabbage and kale and spinach and crops that love to live in cooler weather and actually do well there, uh, they need some time indoors to get uh, to the point that they're ready to go outside. All right. So you and I would recommend having a checklist, something like this to make it easier for folks. We can go ahead and collect all our materials, make sure we've got what we need. So we're not running out Mm -hmm. last minute of the day. We're trying to start the seed. You need a clean seed tray. Yeah. Quality, quality seeds. Do you, do you recommend catalogs or nurseries? I think you find the source that you like, nurseries. I mean, I honestly, I get a lot of my seeds at Pike. I really do. Not just saying that. Um, a lot of times I'm sort of a last-minute guy, and I realize, oh, my gosh, you know, I don't have this seed or that <laughs> seed. And they always have a great wall of seeds. I'm so impressed with their selection. Me too. And the company that they use is Botanical Interest for a lot of their seeds, and I love them. I've had great success with them. But I also... I seek out certified organic seeds from reliable companies such as high mowing organic seeds out of Vermont. And there's a number of reputable seed companies around. And some of them are regional, which can play out better in your garden because they've grown up in your environment and they're sort of adapted over time. And, And so you've got lots of great options, but find what you like and stick with them. Good soil is so important. Um, I do like the seedling mix by Black Gold or just potting in container soil. If you buy something by the big bag, though, do you recommend any amendments or maybe not? Well, I recommend that you seek out a special seed starting mix. As you mentioned, Ashley, the one the product that you named is made for seed starting. And the reason why it's good for that is, first of all, it's sterile, so there's no risk of soil bacteria in there that can harm your seedlings as they're germinating. Secondly, it's very lightweight, so it drains well, which you need. You need light, fluffy, soilless mix is what it's referred to. Mm -hmm. Um, But you want to retain some moisture, too. So the companies that make those products add in water-retentive properties, such as perlite or vermiculite, ways to keep the soil moist without making it heavy. 
And that's key because successful seed germination requires that the soil stay moist but also be very aerated so the seed can breathe, basically. And so I shy away from potting mix and container mix and garden soil because although those are good, they really are designed or manufactured for a different application. Seed starting mix, you need to go with something that's really engineered for that. Okay, and lighter weight, like you said, fluffy, mm-hmm. really airy. Okay. Yeah. A good light. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but like LED light may be good, but without getting too technical, what have you found? Mm-hmm. I mean, what about just that fluorescent well, like shop light? Yes, and, and this is the thing. You know, my my rule of thumb is that uh, work with what you've got. I mean, yes, there are a million options these days from very sophisticated uh, full-spectrum LED lights back down to the basic 40-watt shop light. And let me tell you, I trialed in my course I trial multiple different lighting configurations from some of the most expensive down to the most basic shop light, fluorescent shop light. And if you know how to work with your light, you can have as good a results with your 40-watt, $20 shop light as you can with a multi-hundred-dollar, highly sophisticated LED light. Now, the highly sophisticated LED light does have more firepower, so it will give you more performance over time if you're trying to grow flower or fruiting plants inside. You need that. But for the four to eight weeks that you're growing seedlings inside to plant outside, a fluorescent light is great. But, you know, the LED lights are good, too. So that's a big, big topic, Ashley, on on learning to understand light science and how to work with your lights to make them as efficient as possible. But you can make what you have work generally if you know how to place it over your plants and how the duration of the light time that it's staying on and so forth. So that's just getting to know your lights and how to work with them to make your plants perform. It doesn't matter how you rig it, but maybe chains or ropes or whatever on this light that's above the seed tray, because obviously as the seedlings germinate and you have you know new growth, you're going to need to move the height of that light up and up so that it's not literally right on top of them. So that's kind of neat to, to just keep that in mind, the motion of being able to lower and, and make the light higher. Um, and then a light timer. Do you use that? I thought I was brilliant for coming up with that, but a lot of people probably do that. Uh, they should. Yeah. It, it, it'll it'll save you a lot of time. I leave my lights on uh, at once they germinate and put on their true leaves. I put leave my lights on for 16 hours a day, uh, generally, depending on the light, but mostly 16 hours a day. And so that's just on autopilot with an automatic light timer. And um, I buy the ones with multiple outlets in the strip. Yes. That way, you know, I can have multiple lights on and off going at the same time and um, it just makes your seed starting life so much easier when you can automate some of it and the lighting is probably as important as anything for um, needing some help with timers. Is there a general rule of thumb of how long in the day the light needs to be on when the seeds are just starting out? There's not. It depends on the light that you have. Mm-hmm. There's um, Plants need the proper quality of light and so depending on the light that you have will determine the quality of light that they're getting and the way that you can supplement that is if you have a light that's delivering inferior quality, then you need to leave the light on longer than a light that's a high performer. It's giving that quality of light that those plants need in a 24-hour period in a shorter period of time. So, therefore, you don't need to leave the lights on longer. Uh, and, in fact, too much light can actually have adverse effects over time. So this goes back to my comment to you about understanding your light and how to work with them Mm -hmm. to know how long they should be on. And a lot of it has to do with our observing how the plants are performing. And as Walter 
used to always say, you need to be a Sherlock Holmes in your garden. Right. And I love that phrase because that, that makes us smarter if we're paying attention and looking for clues and trying to determine what's causing that problem or that change in what we're doing and then just follow it back to what it could be. And in indoor seed starting, lights have so much to do with how the seedling is performing. Too much light, not enough light, lights that are too close to the plants, lights that are too far away from the plants, that can cause legginess. And mm-hmm. it's just so many different things. And people don't need to get overwhelmed by this. And I imagine by what I'm saying, they're thinking, oh, my God, I'll never <laughs> get this. But, you know, you do. You just, have to, you just have to start and then pay attention, and that's how you learn. But, um, you know, I've been doing it for decades. So I'm better at it now than I was But basic behaviors of plants, like we talk about house plants too. We've talked a lot about those over the last couple of months. Like just you see them stretching for the sun. You see them almost leaning toward that bright window. So common sense would tell you to rotate it, you know, spit it around, let it kind of lean the other way. But the legginess in these seedlings, like you're talking about, it's no different. You know, if they're really having to stretch up to get that light, maybe bring the light a little closer to it. So yeah, kind of it's just trial and error, some logic there too. Now, two things I want to run by you really quickly, whether or not these are optional. So we covered the four basic things there. A fan. And for folks who don't know, why would you do a fan? It's not for any temperature change or anything like that, but to prevent something called damping off, which is a disease that can affect young seedlings. Do we have to have that air circulation? Is that crucial and why? Yes, I put it in the non-optional category. And the reason for that is uh, what you said, Ashley, damping off is a fungal disease that's very common with uh, seeds as they're germinating, this little fungus forms right at the soil level and, and basically just causes that seedling to lop over and die. And that fungus spreads very easily. So the way that you can prevent that is, the simplest way to prevent it is just air circulation across the soil surface. And so a simple little fan moving air, it doesn't need to be on high speed, just air that's moving is what you need, but that makes all the difference in the world. And so I have a little fan, a $14 fan, mm-hmm. on each of my shelves of my seed starting racks, and that does the trick. I've, I've only had damping off one time in all the years I've been doing it, wow. and that's when I accidentally turned off the fan and didn't know it was off. Oh, no. And um, I got damping off. So but I have it, lots yep. of pictures on the fans configuration and stuff on my Instagram account. That's the easiest way to see what I'm talking about. And that's just at Joe Gardener on Instagram. But there's lots of pictures I'm posting right now because it is that time of year. And you can see the setup and the fans and all that I, you know, all the things that I have just to give you a visual of what I'm talking about. So the fan did prevent that damping off 100% of the time because the one time you had the fan turned off, sure enough, you got it. So that's important. Another optional or not, a seedling heating mat. And now I've not used one, Joe, but when I shopped around, Mm -hmm. $20 to $50 is maybe the price range there, depending on the brand and the size. But how crucial is a heating mat for us to have under the tray? It's optional for us. The reason we use a heating mat is to increase the soil temperature to uh, increase the rate of germination. Seeds have an ideal range in which they'll germinate. And so the closer the seed is to that temperature, the faster it's going to germinate. And so the heat mat will help us get there. For example, tomato seeds uh, germinate between 55 and 90 degrees, but the ideal germination temperature is 85 degrees. So we don't need to get the seeds, the soil up to 85 degrees here. They do just fine in our basements. But um, the the heat mat warms the soil temperature to get the seeds more 
closer to the uh, range or the ideal range for germination. And the closer that temperature is via the heat map, the faster it germinates. But here, you just it's, it's a nice to have, but it's not a need to have. Good. See, we like that. So this doesn't have to be this super expensive venture for sure. So when we come back, we'll go over the top three things you should be doing in the landscape this weekend. You're listening to 95.5 WSB. Channel 2 Action News, meteorologist Brad Nitz. Wet weather tapering off later this afternoon. We stay overcast, and today's high in the mid-40s. And you know how to plan your weekend accordingly. Thanks to Finley Roofing for sponsoring the weather update. So happy that Joe Lample is going to stick around through the bottom of the hour to answer some of your lawn and garden calls and great stuff about seed starting. So I kind of want to mention it in this. Green. Green and growing. Ashley Frasca's top three things to do this weekend. So first of all, I have prepared a seed starting checklist for you to make sure you've got everything you need in case you haven't already picked all of it up. So hop over to Green and Growing WSB. That's what you search on Facebook and like or follow my Facebook page and there you can find that list. But meanwhile, number one, this weekend on the show I'm featuring the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. So celebrating the great backyard bird count that runs through Monday, President's Day. Check out nestwatch.org for help identifying some birds you may be seeing in their nests. But you've got to go to birdcount.org to get started if you want to participate and become a uh, citizen scientist. Number two, you've pruned your roses. And if not, that's okay. If you're leaving them, just finish spraying those and fruit trees early this month while they're still dormant, and that way you won't hurt pollinators. And number three, clean out birdhouses and nesting boxes. If you're hoping to attract house wrens to your nests, don't worry. They've got it covered. The male house wren, he cleans out whatever the old nesting material is wherever he decides to uh, to light between clutches. So that does the job for you. Eastern bluebirds in their bluebird houses, they oftentimes simply build over an existing nest. So it may be helpful to them to clean those out and give them a little bit of a head start. And again, going back to roses, talking about those, we've talked about that for the last few weeks, just because this is the best time of year to go ahead and prune those down for size and other things. And keep in mind, too, as you're getting those rose beds ready, I don't know if you've laid down new mulch or pine straw or bark or something like that, but remove anything that you've pruned as well as some of the leaves from the previous seasons, you know, rose bush growth. Remove all of that from the base of the plant just in case it's carrying diseases or anything else. You don't want the uh, the new growth to be susceptible to that. All right, well, coming back, we'll have Joe Lample and your calls on Green and Growing in an hour number three. Becca Radomsky-Bish from Cornell University to tell us how exactly to participate in the great backyard bird count. I promise it's going to be a lot of fun. Stay tuned right here to Green and Growing. I'm Ashley Frasca on 95.5 WSB. Growing with Ashley Frasca. Plants, flowers, trees, and stuff. Brought to you by Pike Nurseries on 95.5 WSB. My guest expert Joe Lample sticking around to answer some of your garden questions. 404-872-0750. Joe, we're going to start off and say good morning to Mike in McDonough. Hi, Mike. Hey. 
Um, Joe, I had a couple quick questions. Um, I know it's way early for starting cucumber seeds, but uh, I've tried dozens of different supposedly heat-tolerant varieties, and I've never had much luck with the heat and humidity around here. I was going to see if you could um, uh, suggest some varieties that could handle the heat around here, and then I had a quick compost question if we have time. Gotcha. Okay, yes. Well, I think the heat and the humidity, and mostly the humidity is the bigger problem, Mike, but have you tried... um, do you like the slicing varieties, the binding slicing varieties better than the bushing bush varieties? Yeah, preferably the, the slicing. How about, have you done straight eight and market more 76? Yeah, I've tried those and some like the Ashley that's supposed to be heat tolerant and Confederate and even some of the Asian ones that are supposed to be, but they all seem to fizzle out all about the same time. And I agree with that. And I'll tell you this, um, Cucumbers are sort of the bane of my existence, too, here. I, I just think of living in Atlanta, it, it's going to, the heat and the humidity, the combination of the two is going to catch up with us. And, and starting earlier can help you uh, get ahead of it. And so um, I think even with the heat tolerant varieties, we're just struggling because we've got the combination of the humidity as well. I have one of those uh, above ground tumbler type composters, and yep. uh, it works great. Um, I want to keep adding my kitchen scraps as long as I can, but I also know that i got to give it a certain amount of time to finish composting, okay. you know, by April. How long, when should I stop? That's a great question. It's a common question, but anybody that has either a single bin or a single tumbler, at some point you've got to stop adding to it or you'll never have all finished compost. Right. Because the stuff that you added initially is breaking down, but if you keep adding fresh compost or fresh ingredients or inputs into it, it's always going to be in a state of working but never Mm -hmm. finished. So my advice is to always have more than one tumbler or one bin because once you get that first bin to the point where you've added everything that you can to fill it, you need to move on to another one so you can give that first bin time to finish and not continue to add to it or you'll never get it finished. So you need to walk away from it once it's full and start a new pile. And literally, even if it's just a pile in your corner of your yard, yeah. that suffices. That's how I did it for years. Now I use a three-bin system, so I always have some compost at some level of completion, whether it's fresh ingredients, in process, or finished. And the more of those bins that you have, the better able you're able to manage you know, the state of where your compost is. But you just need to have at least more than one have finished compost eventually in one of them. And how often do we turn them? It's not as often as you would think. Well, actually, the more you turn it, the better, because oh, you okay. always want to have air and oxygen working. And so at least once a week, but the more, the better. Okay, great. See, I knew it. Joe had a comprehensive answer. He's done it, folks. He's been there. He's done it. He is speaking from experience. We had another question from a caller, and I wanted to kind of help Kathy out a little bit. Kathy calling from Gainesville. Good morning. Welcome to the show. Good morning. I've got a question about a green pepper plant. I have been overwintering it. It's probably five years old now. And I've been keeping it in the hopes that it would actually produce earlier than starting from uh, new plants. But the Mm -hmm. peppers that it puts out in the spring particularly are extremely small, um, maybe bigger than a golf ball but not as big as a tennis ball. And I've been upping the amount of light that I give it in the wintertime, which has helped. But still, the first batch of peppers are really very small. I wonder if there's anything else I should do differently. So this is um, the the batch that you're getting first is is mostly coming on from the indoor environment with the grow lights? Um, I will get peppers during the winter. 
Uh, but mm-hmm. mainly they're ones that get produced after it's been moved back outside. Hmm. But they've started forming beforehand, and, and so when they, you get them out there? Uh, prob- they're probably from flowers that formed inside, yes. And what about the peppers that come on in the second round or just after the first little round with the little guys? Um, do they continue to stay small, or do they, they get back to what would you call normal size? Even the second round is a little small. Um, it it kind of takes the third batch before they start getting bigger. They mm-hmm. never get as big as the ones that you plant new in the garden. And right. since I've been upping the light over the winter, they get bigger faster. Okay, so my my guess at this is that um, peppers just need the the help of Mother Nature to really perform as their their genetics wants them to, but it requires just a longer period outside under more intense light to really have everything kick into gear to the point where all everything's firing off on all cylinders, basically. So what you're doing indoors is kind of keeping that plant awake in a semi-dormant state at least, but it sounds like you've got it producing. And I, I really think that maybe it, it needs more time to just sort of gear down over that winter period and, and uh, maybe back off on that and then let it really do what it's designed to do in the heat of the summer and the more intense light when um, it can utilize all of its resources that it has within plus what Mother Nature is providing overhead to really let it go strong. So, I mean, if you know that this is a plant that used to produce larger fruit and you see that around the third cycle of the production, to me that's saying that it's, it's finally catching up later in the season now that the roots have settled back out into the more opportunistic soil and it's had more time under the sun and it's got that heat that it loves and it's really finally doing what it was made to do, but it's just taking all of those resources that are provided outside to really maximize its potential. I think until then it's it's compromised, and so it wants to put out that fruit, but it's just not able to do it to its fullest capability until it has everything that it needs. Yeah. And that's from within and overhead. Can't tell you how thankful I am to have experts and friends like Joe Lample join us on the show. Find his Joe Gardner Facebook page and also visit joegardner.com. So much information there, an online academy, podcast, blogs, all kinds of things. And from that same show, just a few weeks back, we had some great advice from some experts about how to prune roses. First up is certified aesthetic pruner, Norm Mitleider. So wintertime, we're pruning, we're cleaning things up and allowing them to, you know, be in their best condition to put on that new growth in the spring. Let's talk about roses. Correct me if I'm wrong, but maybe when we're talking about knockouts, a very common rose, I always think February 14th, Valentine's Day, good time to prune or not? Yes, um, that is a good time, but you can also start pruning them early January, but you definitely do want to make sure and not prune later than the end of February. And they've held on to some of their leaves, which is okay, and even some dead blooms if you haven't, you know, gone along and pinched those off. But if we have leggy knockouts, Norm, that are maybe three or four feet high, how much pruning can we do this time of year? This time of year, if you really wanted to get after them, in other words, take them down to a foot from the ground, you can do that. Naturally, once you've started developing your rows, that really isn't necessary because each year you're going to trim them down, but not as 
you're not going to be as hard. Whereas if you're just starting out, you may need to trim them much harder and then over the course of the following years be a little bit lighter. But Norm, let's give them a little bit of a bonus tip. Throughout the course of the spring and summer, when we just need to remove some limbs here and there, some selective pruning, tell people where it's crucial they cut a limb back to. Always trim to a growth point. You never want to trim midstream and have a stub. You always want to make sure that you've either trimmed back to a stem or a branch or buds or even the trunk. Pruning back, especially with these roses, to an outward-facing bud, prune right above that, and that's going to be a new growth point. That's going to be a new stem for the rose bush that season. So, Norm, thanks for stopping by. appreciate the advice, friend. Thank you. Jackson Grimsley from the Roswell location there near Roswell High School, Pike Nursery. Good morning and welcome to the show. Good morning, Ashley. Thanks for having me on. There's so much to be doing with roses right now, right? Planting new ones. Now is also the time to be pruning these. And I want you to get a little bit into that, Jackson. We have a couple of minutes, but let me ask you, we pick up the dormant rose, you know, from Pike Nursery. It's just stemmy. That's all it is right now as we bring it home in the pot. Do we have to do some pruning with new ones that we buy or we're, they're just ready to pop in the ground and ready to grow? No, they are ready to go the second you get them home. Um, they've already been pruned for this season, so they are they are perfect and ready to go. Not much work to do other than put them in the ground, like you said. And uh, the majority of our roses do come in a biodegradable pot as well, so you don't even actually have to take them out of the container. You just pop that con- container straight in the ground and they're ready to go. How cool is that? And this is foolproof, guys, because Pike Nursery guarantees all trees and shrubs for life, and that includes roses. So give it a good start, and then you're you're off and running. So I know, Jackson, you know a lot about uh, pruning existing roses. Give us some tips to make us uh, most efficient doing that. So pruning roses is extremely important. That's how you're going to really maintain the, the shape and the, the prolific blooming that you're looking for out of your rose. Um, you know, you can be pretty harsh with them cutting them back you can cut them back you know by about two-thirds the most important thing though is you don't want to prune uh, below kind of your your central bud union down towards the bottom of the ground Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's extremely important but you do want to remove any you know dead stems small and you know kind of twiggy stems and anything that's growing towards the center of the plant Uh, you kind of want the branches to come up almost in a v or vase like shape uh, almost goblet like and that's going to really help with the with the shape of the plant um, in the future but it's uh, what's extremely important is that you sanitize your equipment in between plants um, so you don't want to transfer potentially any uh, pests or any diseases or fungi or anything it's extremely important to sanitize those all your tools and everything in between uh, your plants Finally, you do want to make sure you clean up any debris, any leaves, any old branches, anything like that, because if there is any, you know, sort of fungus or disease or anything, that could still be on the ground in those uh, decaying leaves and decaying branches. So you want to make sure to clean that up really well. And then finally, you do want to use a pruning sealer, which is a great product. Anytime you prune anything, you want to use a pruning sealer. It's just going to basically seal the end of the stem, and it's going to make sure that insects and diseases don't have an easy path into your plant. Absolutely correct. Yeah, pruning is so important not only to maintain size of something, but also to really allow good airflow through the center of the plant. That knocks back diseases. 
and pests as well. So thanks, Jackson. We're going to hear more from Pike Nursery about what they have for you this weekend in the stores coming up at 830. But first, the great backyard bird count. That's how we'll start our number three. We'll hear from Becca Radomsky-Bish of Cornell University in the Lab of Ornithology. I want you to get involved. This is a fun one. We did it last year. We're doing it again. Stay tuned to Green and Growing on WSB. Channel 2 Action News, meteorologist Brad Nitz. Wet weather tapering off later this afternoon. We stay overcast and today's high in the mid-40s. Thank you so much. That weather update sponsored by Finley Roofing. So yeah, you just heard me talk to Norm Mitleider and Jackson Grimsley of Pike Nursery, both with wonderful tips on pruning roses. So that's something we've talked about. Hopefully you've done it by now. If not, it's not too late. And speaking of roses, that's included in this. Green and Growing with Ashley Frasca. Here's your garden to-do list this week. So get those roses pruned, most varieties of roses anyways, right now. And go ahead and remove all the debris from underneath the plants, old leaves and limbs and things like that. And if you're going to leave your rose bushes just the way they are, maybe you have climbing roses or something like that, finish spraying those and spray fruit trees early this month with herbicides if necessary or pesticides while they're still dormant. That way you won't hurt any pollinators. Number two, a lot of mention coming up uh, for the next hour of the show of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology and the Great Backyard Bird Count. I did this last year, and it was such a blessing right as my show was beginning this very time last year. This was a great topic for me, so I've brought back uh, Becca Radomsky-Bish to talk to us about how we can participate and represent Georgia in our state to let folks worldwide know what birds we have, what birds we're seeing. This way they can maybe discover if some are endangered and their paths have changed or their homes have changed. So becoming a citizen scientist and just participating anytime this weekend, one time through Monday, uh, for 15 minutes is really all you need. All the details on birdcount.org. That's where you want to go. Or I like this website. If you just have trouble identifying birds and you see them and you don't know the name of them, go to nestwatch.org for help identifying some of them and their nests. And number three, clean out those birdhouses and nesting boxes. Eastern bluebirds will sometimes build over an existing nest, so it may be helpful to them if you clean out those those bluebird houses. But house wrens, that's pretty cool. Don't worry, they've got it covered. The male house wren, he cleans out the old nesting material between clutches, basically doing the job for you. So love that guy. He works hard so we don't have to. And coming up at 8.30, Pike Nursery with what you'll want to look for in the nurseries this weekend and this coming week. And more calls as well. That's going to be the time. 404-872-0750. We're back in just a few minutes on Green and Growing on WSB. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.